Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. Hey. Is that all we're getting from you? <laughs> uh, I, I, I guess I can do another one. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and Josh, I finally figured out how I'm going to murder you. I'm going to wait till the dead of winter, and once you go outside in the freezing cold, I'm going to stab you right in the belly to see if steam escapes from your innards so I can finally know if you have a soul or not. Thank you for that very, very dark introduction inspired by this light, fun comedy. <laughs> so, I said hi, and that wasn't good enough for you. Well, you, you uh, yeah. It's a podcast. You have to speak. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like it that's, was, uh, that's essential. That's how Garth says hello. That is true. I, Garth is Garth yeah. is very uh, laconic. And uh, <laughs> he is one of the main characters of this movie that we're about to talk about. Uh, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1992. And we are here at my pick, which is Wayne's World featuring Wayne and Garth. It is a light, fun comedy. Certainly a movie that I watched many, many times when I was a kid, although I hadn't seen it in a while uh, before this time. But uh, I do still have the VHS sitting uh, in my bedroom. And I was I, I was tempted to actually watch it on VHS for this podcast, but it's uh, it's cropped. So I felt like that would probably not be the best experience. So I didn't do that. You but, really wanted the full cinemascope I mean, aspect ratio. If I'm going to watch a movie, fun. I should watch it in its intended format. I feel like if it's possible to do so, that's what I'm going to do. But uh, I did own this on VHS and still do. Watched it many, many times as a kid. And I still enjoyed watching it this time. So hopefully we, uh, we agree on that point. But I was certainly not the only person who enjoyed Wayne's World when it was released. It was a huge hit. And nice um, move, Josh. Thank you. That's that's those kind of transitions. <laughs> that's what I'm here Yeah, for. you related to the audience with a personal experience and uh, it really felt good. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, sometimes I've picked movies that are somewhat obscure or lesser known, but in this case, I was with the people. I loved this movie that was very, very popular. It grossed $183.1 million on its budget of just $20 million, and it was the 10th highest grossing movie of 1992, um, which it, it was somewhat of a surprise hit, I would think. It was based on a very, very popular Saturday Night Live sketch, but at the time, making movies based on Saturday Night Live sketches wasn't a big thing. This is the second movie based on an SNL sketch after the Blues Brothers, which was Jason's pick last season in our 1980 season. But of course, that was 12 years earlier. So it wasn't like even though the Blues Brothers was a huge hit, it wasn't like that kicked off some wave of SNL movies. They hadn't done any until this one. So it was still a bit of an experiment to see how this would go. And obviously it worked out very, very well. Yeah, this really kicked off the wave of SNL movies and what a franchise that's become. Yeah, Josh. but it still happens despite the questionable uh, nature of most of those films. This one, however, again, very, very popular, successful with audiences. It got an A minus from CinemaScore, the audience polling service. And it was also pretty successful with critics. It got mostly positive reviews from critics and a movie like this, a uh, 
kind of lowbrowish comedy based on a sketch. Oftentimes, critics are not into those kinds of films, but mostly they enjoyed it. It got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert, who were both very enthused about this film and its uh, sort of smart, dumb humor, which is something that I always enjoy uh, about this movie and a lot of other similar kinds of movies. And um, they did, of course, mention its connection to Aurora, Illinois, which is, uh, you know, a suburb of Chicago where they're based. I don't know how realistic it is in terms of Aurora, Illinois, but um, I've never been. It's funny that you mentioned that, Josh, because one of the points I have marked down in my notes, because mm. I prepare for the show, is, um, you know, originally Wayne appeared in, uh, it's it's called, uh, what is that called? I got it in the notes, Josh. I'm going to the notes. Don't you worry. It's right there. Wayne's Power Minute on its only rock and roll, which was a Canadian show. And Wayne was originally set in Ontario, Canada. And I feel like the humor here is so Canadian. I don't feel like we're in Illinois. I feel like we're in Canada for this movie. Right. And of course, Mike Myers is Canadian and is the creator of these characters. And yes, you're absolutely right. Presumably it was changed to Aurora, Illinois, when Mike Myers moved to SNL because that's an American show. And Lorne Michaels said, you have to do something that our audience will have heard of, even though people have heard of Canada. But you could you could imagine that being <laughs> some sort of network note. But yes. I hey, mean, Josh. Yeah. I've been to Canada. Oh, well, you've got one up on me. I've only heard of Canada. I've never been there. So, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Me too. I've been there. All right. You, wow. you guys both win. Yeah. You know? Awesome. Um, but yes, obviously, like Wayne and Garth's affinity for playing hockey and the Stan Makita's Donuts where they go, which is right. similar to kind of like a Tim Hortons. And a lot of very Canadian. And of course, Mike Myers, very strong Canadian accent doesn't really sound like a Midwestern accent. And that kind of like, I mean, I don't even call it smart dumb because it is pretty smart. But that like kind of droll, like subversive, but like in your face humor is also a very Canadian thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, although there's certainly a tradition of these kinds of, of movies with these, uh, you know, dumb buddy comedies that uh, are smart, but the characters are not smart, I guess we could say. And uh, Manchild. Yes, Manchild. Man exactly. That is what we've got going on here. So uh, Roger Ebert mentions uh, one of those other franchises in his review. He said, I walked into Wayne's World expecting a lot of dumb, vulgar comedy, and I got plenty. But I also found what I didn't expect, a genuinely amusing, sometimes even intelligent undercurrent. Like the Bill and Ted movies, this one works on its intended level and then sneaks in excursions to some other levels, too. The plot is not exactly the point here. It's only a clothesline. What is funny about Wayne's World, sometimes really funny, are the dialogue and sight gags. Some of the biggest laughs in the film could not possibly be described because their humor depends entirely on the fact that the filmmakers were weird enough to go for them in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that's my favorite thing is like, obviously, it's Wayne's World. Wayne's the star. But I like all the weird, nonsensical uh, stuff. You know, the guy, I love you. OK, I know. Right. No, I love you. You <laughs> yes. know, that stuff. Yes. And, you know, we'll go through a lot of the different things throughout the episode. But all those weird little parts and just like, you know, when I, you know, referencing Garth earlier, just how um, phobic of people he is. Like he's social, but he hates being around people. I love seeing stuff like that, you know, so um, 
Yeah, Ebert, uh, I think, got it right. Siskel had it uh, number eight on his top 10 list for the year, if I'm not mistaken. So um, all this stuff is fun when it's executed well. And in this instance, it is like the original Bill and Ted movie. Yeah, and I, I love the Bill and Ted movies, as we may have talked about in 89, even though we didn't actually cover that movie. But it's certainly one of my favorites. And I just something about these kinds of it's a very specific kind of buddy movie where they're, you know, like these best friends where they're kind of dimwitted, but the humor is more sophisticated, whether it's Bill and Ted or Wayne and Garth or Beavis and Butthead or uh, Harold and Kumar more more recently or Romy and Michelle. I love There's a very specific kind of movie and kind of character, but I'm almost guaranteed to enjoy it when that when it comes up. So I'm uh, I'm with you, Bert on that i wish you could have just given us an example of that type of movie. right well I, my point is that there's actually quite a lot <laughs> and and that is your point indeed and a lot of the time it transcends just one movie and they become these pop culture figures almost all of those that i that i just mentioned aside from romeo and michelle and even them a bit have become you know they're getting a remake now right i, I don't know if or they a are. sequel i don't know yeah, i don't know but i just i just wrote something about the anniversary of that film there was a terrible prequel that was made uh a while ago but other than that i don't know if anything else is happening with them but i wonder if they ever did like a broadway musical that seems ripe for them. it was based on like a, a play that the screenwriter had written but it wasn't a broadway show it was a underground kind of thing so it, it could very mm. well end up there i would imagine it might but in the meantime, now back to Wayne's right, World. We're talking Josh. about Wayne's World, actually. <laughs> so uh, thank you, thank you for that, Dave. Um, so Dwayne, Dwayne Berge in the Hollywood Reporter seems to have attempted to emulate some kind of cool dude speak in his review. It didn't really work, but he says, "Oh, that's good." While the plot is a bit light, even to be carried on Wayne and Garth's droopy shoulders, it's splendidly smart, dumb stuff. Even demanding hypercharged viewers whose systems have been overinjected with junk food will be pleasantly stimulated by the screenwriter's series of kooky non sequitur asides and side road ventures to Milwaukee. Whoever catered this set must have served extra good donuts and stuff because the acting is real good, and we're not just talking about Rob Lowe's deep smoothie performance. As Wayne and Garth, you could compare Mike Myers and Dana Carvey to Jack Nicholson and Robert De Niro if you were talking about funny ways of dressing. But they're real smart in their send-up of heavy metal party animals. I don't know what he's trying to talk about there with what? The, what? Jack Nicholson yeah. and De Niro. <laughs> That's I don't know. Do they They don't really dress dress funny per se. I, I don't I don't know. I don't think anyone would ever compare <laughs> Wayne and Garth to <laughs> And Jack Nicholson and Robert De Niro don't even act together. Right. So it's like, what, you know, like, it's just yeah. like, what are you and if doing? it's like, do they have like kind of distinctive fashion senses? I don't feel like that they do really necessarily. So I don't know what he's trying to and say. Why there. do donuts make you act really good? Yeah, I guess. I mean, right. I think, I think this is some guy who is like, trying to sound weird and and it's just completely it's a complete failure but he did enjoy the movie so do you know what i want to say to to him josh yeah uh, sphincter says what Ah, uh, yeah he would probably not get that <laughs> so uh yeah there were many 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 headlines that were things like this movie sucks not and uh, right right a lot of people using that construction for their reviews um 
So uh, I did want to get one uh, less enthusiastic response. But again, most critics were positive. This was a generally very well-reviewed movie. But Kenneth Tran in the LA Times was not really a fan. Um, and I thought it was weird and interesting because he clearly was a fan of the sketches. He said, what have they done to Wayne's World? Not that the ongoing Saturday Night Live skit this new film is based on had the emotional resonance of the complete works of Shakespeare or that the big screen version is a horrific blot on the escutcheon of world cinema. It's just that when something that was fine and clever exactly where it was gets awkwardly transplanted just to make a fast buck, well, it's enough to make you spew. The Wayne's World concept, which, egged on by a rabid studio audience, works so beautifully in skit format, ends up feeling dragged out and energyless at feature length. You know, it's funny because you could say that about a lot of the other SNL movies right. probably, but obviously we all disagree on the Wayne's World thing. And I don't think anyone would question the energy that it's got momentum the whole way through this, this film. Yeah. I think this is a remarkably well-plotted movie. I mean, the plot is, is very predictable, but it, it, it has clear action going on. There's a clear antagonist. There's clear goals for the characters. There's development, there's relationships, there's all this stuff that you want in a movie. And uh, it doesn't really feel dragged out. I think you're right. You can say that about a lot of SNL movies. I think you can say that about Wayne's World, too, in a lot of ways, because they don't seem to have as clear a vision for the plot of that film. But I, yeah, I definitely think he's wrong about this. And, and I, I know for myself, at least when and I imagine this was probably the case for a lot of people, given how big a hit this movie was. When I saw this movie, I had never seen Wayne's World on Saturday Night Live. I wasn't a Saturday Night Live viewer at age 12. But I loved it. I loved this movie. And I didn't feel like it was a, a sketch or, a, you know, a version of a sketch. It felt like a real movie to me. So I, I think he's wrong. But I just, you know, kind of wanted to get that perspective in there as well. I think it's interesting that you had no uh, reference point beyond, like, commercials or other people talking about it. Like, you know, I... I was watching SNL at that time, Josh. I'm a little more advanced than you. Right. I, I, I and, watched it more in high school, but not, not before this. And so, yeah, I knew the sketches and liked them and was ready to party on with Wayne and Garth when the movie came. Right. So you saw this right when it was released? Yeah. This was like, not just saw it when it was released. This was like, we got to go see Wayne's World. Right. You know, that type of thing. And yeah. Um, you know, I liked it. Uh, I liked it a lot then. And it's still a re really fun. movie. Yeah, I liked it a lot then, too. And I think I, I mean, I can't remember for 100 percent for sure. But I feel like I also had that feeling of like, I got to go see Wayne's World, even though I didn't know the sketches. But I think at the time it was like, oh, these funny heavy metal dudes. And I was like getting into that music. And I thought, you know, people I was probably I thought Wayne and Garth were cool, which is, of course, the point is that they're not cool. But I was like, wow, these guys are my role models. I got to go watch their movie. So um, I, I kind of felt that way also, even though it wasn't on something I was familiar with. I mean, a few things about that, Josh, like, I mean, this is a film you really don't need any background for right. from the sketch, right. right? They do most of the signature bits, except like the top five reasons. They, I'm surprised they didn't have one of those in there. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, I would argue they're not uncool. They got their own show. They got, they got like a whole crew that loves them. You know, Wayne gets Cassandra. That's pretty cool, sure. right? Yeah, so. True. Um, you know, I mean, he's an adult who lives in his parents' house, but like, 
you know, he takes it on the chin and jokes about it. But I, I don't think they're uncool, Josh. I guess that's true. They're just not they're not cool in the same way that like Rob Lowe's character is cool, where he's like suave and smooth, as uh, Dwayne Berkey points out in The Hollywood Reporter and, you know, successful and handsome and all of that. So they're more like lovable losers, I guess. But um, yeah, that's true. The one thing about that Dwayne Berge thing that you mentioned with Rob Lowe, though, is like this Rob Lowe's a little underrated about how capable he is of doing things like he's perfect as like the bad guy who doesn't like make you hate him. But like you kind of have fun along with the way he loses. He's always great in that Right, role. he's perfect. He's not an over-the-top villain here, but you're, you're, he's clearly the, the the bad guy, and you want him to lose, but he's also kind of amusing along the way. And yeah, absolutely, Rob Lowe is perfect for this role. And this was a time when it was, you know, kind of after Rob Lowe's big 80s heyday when he was a huge star and he was uh, doing more small things at this moment and they picked the exact right person. And maybe if they had made this movie a couple years earlier, Rob Lowe would have been too much of a big star to take that part, but he was right in the right. Well, place. yeah, he, he had the sex tape scandal right. and then like, he kind of fell way out of, um, you know, mainstream stardom. So in a way this was like a good comeback vehicle for him as well. Right. And they were lucky to be able to get him cause he's certainly perfect for that part. And the way, and the way he walks after he gets the, the uh, rectal, search. the digital, re yeah, the digital rectal exam is, uh, is just, he nails that. It's walk. true I mean, because I mean, it's weird to talk <laughs> about that, but that's the kind of thing that you could easily overdo. You know, and he's just does it enough that you're like, oh, I know what happened there, but it's not like ridiculous. So, uh, yeah, right exactly in this sweet spot of that, uh, I guess you could say <laughs> the sweet right. spot. That's yeah, what they were looking for. It reminded yeah. me of it reminded me of your normal walk. I don't know what that I don't means, know but, either, but let's uh, let's leave that alone. <laughs> Dave, did you uh, I, this sounds it seems like the kind of movie, Dave, that you would have been really into as a teenager. I would guess that for at least a year, it was my number one favorite movie of all time. Yeah, yeah. I, I I absolutely loved it. I saw it in the theater at least once, maybe three, four times. And uh, I, I'll double down on Josh. You talking about like you were just getting into metal and all that stuff at this time, so it made it like you know extra cool to see this movie got me into music. Like I, you know, music was just a thing that was in the background. Music became completely my life because of Wayne and Garth. You know what I mean? So this movie was huge to me at that age. Yeah, for me too. I mean, I was getting into some of this music, but this movie definitely introduced me to specific like bands and stuff that were on this. The soundtrack to this movie was a huge, huge deal for me. Oh yeah. And I bought too. it on CD and I listened to it over and over again. And certainly I had never, I had not heard Queen. I mean, I wasn't alone in that. It, this was a huge launch, like sort of comeback launching point for Queen. But sure. also the Red Hot Chili Peppers and mm -hmm. Jimi Hendrix. I mean, things that were, <laughs> people were familiar with. You didn't know who Jimi Hendrix was? I was 12 was? years old. No, I right. didn't know who yeah. Jimi Hendrix was. What, what did you do as a 12-year-old that you were, you didn't know, you didn't watch SNL. You had, didn't know who Jimi Hendrix was. What were I mean, you doing? I maybe knew the name Jimi Hendrix, but I had never like listened to the music. I, let's say. Right. And I started mm. because of this. So, no, I mean, at, at 12, I had just started listening to like, pirate radio the local in la the local like hard rock station and i knew guns and roses and def leopard and motley Crue, and you know before that i was listening to cnc music factory so no i was right. not super familiar 
with Jimi Hendrix. I'm sorry. Same boat here. Same boat. We're not as cool as you. Jason. I mean, I like. Yeah, Josh, I like CNC Music Factory as much as anybody. Which you know, is not very much, gotta, presumably, you know. because who loves CNC Music Factory? Well, I mean, they they were going to make you sweat till you bleed, mm-hmm. and that was dope enough, indeed. Thank you. Uh, but uh, I I mean, I I guess uh, you know, I I was already listening to Jimi Hendrix and watching us. Well, good for you. You know. So Way to cool. go. I guess I peaked at 12. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But did you have a podcast? No. No, you didn't. Yeah, but back then we might have been a public access We could show. have been. That I have feel been cool. like I, I might have watched things on public. Uh, uh, Roger Ebert at the end of his review has this random aside where he says that the Chicago public access station, uh, like in conjunction with this movie, presumably saw it as an opportunity to promote themselves. And... Uh, sort of asked Ebert to watch their programming and he basically says that it's all terrible and not worth watching. So, uh, uh. Yeah. but you know, we should have had, uh, I'm not sure if he was doing it. I don't think he would have been doing it this early, but, uh, Jeffrey K Howard, uh, a local film critic here in Las Vegas was on public access is still on public access television. And, uh, that, that's the kind of thing we could have had our little, uh, movie review show maybe on public access TV as 12 year olds. We didn't know each other then, but somehow it mm. could have happened. Pie in the sky, Josh. But uh, I do kind of miss, you know, obviously YouTube is the most public of yes. access now. And, but I do kind of miss those like searches and for the weird stuff you would find on public access television. Right. You turn it on at 1030 at night on a Friday or something. And there would be somebody like Wayne and Garth. I mean, that's why partly why the sketch was popular because people recognize this kind of thing that they would have seen on their actual on their TVs, on their actual public access stations. Well, you might have been doing that at age 12, Josh, at 1030 on a Friday night, but I was out with all the babes. Right. <laughs> yeah, because you were way cooler than me. <laughs> uh, anything else on this, uh, on the background of this movie that you want to mention, Jason? You, got, you know, as we said, um, it debuted on these Canadian shows. They did 21 sketches uh, on SNL throughout the years, obviously, when those two were cast members. And then, you know, on some of the reunion stuff and everything, uh, Wayne's world SNL didn't air in England, but they like kind of programmed these as like short 10 minute, uh, like, you know, just micro programs in England. So that's how it got out there. And, uh, originally there was no Garth. So good move by bringing in Garth. Yeah. I think that's one of the things and maybe we'll talk about this more, but you know, people think of this as a Mike Myers movie because he became so much of a bigger, star and he did create the characters but this movie doesn't work without dana carvey without garth because it's the balance is is key there i think so yeah good move adding him i agree josh and you wonder perhaps when you look at the solo vehicles of both these guys if maybe they should have combined powers on some of the other things yeah maybe they should have been like a, a comedy duo where not only did they make wayne's world sequels but they made other movies together you know, like uh, like Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, say, like who we've talked about before. But that is not something that ended up happening. One can only wonder how much better, if it's even possible for films like The Love Guru and The Master of Disguise to have been right. if the two of them were there. Right. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll leave that for a moment. <laughs> so we'll come back then and talk about our general thoughts on Wayne's World. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, 
We are talking about my pick, Wayne's World, which, as I said, was a major formative uh, influence on me as a young person. And really, I I, I wrote this on Letterboxd. I, I feel like of all the movies that I was really, really into in that early teenage period, this is the one where I basically like formed my personality around it for a period of time. Like, obviously, this is something that people were quoting lines from, you know, catchphrases and all that stuff. But like I was saying, I really thought Wayne and Garth were like the coolest people. I wanted to talk like them. I liked the same music that they liked. I dressed like them. You can't see me, but I basically still dress like them. <laughs> um, <laughs> you did dress like them. I remember in high school, even years after. Right. I know? mean, and uh, which of their uh, catchphrases did you say a lot, Josh? I mean, I think the main one, like uh, the my my friends and I, you know, saying not. You know, that that kind of thing was was I mean, and that's not something that they and everyone, everyone. Right. It's that, not something yeah. that they invented, but certainly that was something to say uh, or or the way to refer to attractive women, um, things like that. <laughs> you, you did a swing. I maybe wouldn't do one in the presence of somebody. That's not that's not cool. First of all, don't do that. And Wait a second. You are 12. We're not saying you're going around looking at ladies now going, swing. No, no, you know, no. And you I, were 12. I, we're good. You get a free pass. Right. And I, what I'm saying is that I think even at 12, I wouldn't have done it like in person with somebody. But if I was talking about, you know, uh, attractive ladies, actresses or whatever with friends, would we do that? Yeah, probably. So, yeah. right. I mean, I just think that everything about this to me was like the coolest thing. and I was very much influenced by it. So, and, and I still think, I mean, maybe I don't want to be Wayne and Garth anymore. Although if Wayne and Garth existed now, they would have a podcast. So, um, and Wayne I mean, and Garth do exist now because they were in an Uber Eats Super Bowl commercial in 2021. Yeah. And that was a very, very sad, sad experience. <laughs> um, How did you feel when you saw that? Um, Old, very, very old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You are. I am. It's true. We all are here yeah. on Awesome Movie Year. So uh, <laughs> obviously I love this, but Jason, you you like this movie too. You're a fan of this as well. I do. I, I you know, I've talked about these type of movies a few times and I go back to like Slapshot. It's just one of these rainy day movies you could turn on and like turn off your brain for an hour and a half and just have a good time, you know? And I, when I say turn off your brain, like there is a lot of smart stuff in here. So I don't mean like that. I just mean like you just let your worries go away and you, you, you know, go on the ride in the mirth mobile with these guys and, and just have a lot of fun. I really feel like this is a sub genre of comedy that's missing nowadays. And it's a, always a pleasure to revisit when it's executed well. Yeah. Who are the modern Wayne and Garth? I don't even know. I feel like, again, like Harold and Kumar come closest. But at this point, those movies are 10, 15 years old. So I don't know who is our, our current version of that. Right. I mean, you know, like I would mention Step Brothers, but that's another 10 year, you know, yeah. 10, 2009. So there's nothing like in the last few years that's kind of like captured. You know what I would say is the closest thing? And it's Canadian is letter Kenny, mm. um, you know, which is more than two guys, but that type of, they like really commit to that, that type of humor. And they're like, you know, eventually they know it's so funny that you're going to go with them or if you don't, they don't care. 
Right. Yeah, I, I know you love Letterkenny, and that's something that I haven't watched, but uh, probably should at least check out. I would throw the Lonely Island guys in in the bunch, you know, another Saturday Night Live thing that works. Yeah, and... I mean, and those guys are funny, but I feel like they don't have their, like you said, the Lonely Island guys, you don't say like, oh, these, these characters of theirs, right? Because they don't have sure, something sure. like that. Um, right. But yes, they do a lot of funny stuff. They're certainly in that tradition of Mike Myers and Dana Carvey on, on SNL. But this is, you're right, Jason, this is a kind of a comfort movie, especially for people of our generation who watched it as kids, as teenagers, and it's nostalgic as well. I hadn't seen it in a while, but it's certainly like it came back to me. I could quote half the lines as I was watching the movie. Um, it's definitely something that gives you that warm feeling as you're watching it. And it is a feel feel good kind of movie. Like, again, with the plot is super predictable and Rob Lowe is a villain, but he's not even all that villainous and you can just have a nice time with it. You can. But, Josh, they, we should give it a little more credit than that, because some of the things that they do really well is play with the form, you know, breaking the fourth wall. And Wayne talks to the camera, but, you know, the camera doesn't always go back to Wayne. You know, Garth's able to play with it. Sometimes the camera moves away. Honestly, my favorite thing in this whole movie is Ed O'Neill. Yes. I love that Ed O'Neill character at Stan Kiedis. So and it's and he's perfect and just wonderful. And it's it's so much as you referenced in my uh homage to it at the beginning, so much darker than everything else in there. And it's just um you know, he's the uh, he works at the Stan Makita's Donuts and he's just uh, every time he gets a hold of the camera, he's talking about death or crime. Why do they come to me? Because they want to be to die, right. you know? whatever it is. Just really funny stuff. I mean, the Alice Cooper bit, you know, we've seen uh, kind of that has been done 7000 times now where it's like, hey, you're uh, you're someone that we don't expect to say something really smart. Let me, you know, hear you do that. And then everything. and. Um, also, all that uh, product placement, the way they do the product placement was really funny, I thought. Yeah, that bit where they're complaining to Benjamin Rob Lowe's character about how they don't want to sell out on Wayne's World. And it is full of product placement for real products, including a bunch of slogans that, of course, uh, people don't necessarily remember from 1992. But but that's, that's part of the fun is that we do remember it. It's like our own little Easter egg, right? Right. And I think it's still funny. In, in a way, it might even be funnier to people who don't know those slogans. And it's just even more complete absurdity. I mean, some of those, most of those products have at least endured. Although I don't know if Nuprin still exists, the like headache medicine that they take. And especially that, that was pretty funny. Yeah. That, that slogan, <laughs> a little yellow different. I mean, I remember those commercials, but I don't, I don't know if that still exists. Um, but yeah, that's a funny bit. And of course you imagine that they probably did, you know, they had their cake and ate it too there because I'm sure they actually got paid for that product placement and then they could just make fun of it. And something that was done later on like community and 30 rock, you know, the exact same thing with with product placement where they they got the product placement and then they also made fun of it. But this is the first time, I think. Yeah, uh, my my favorite is just that it keeps escalating to the point of, you know, the Pepsi choice of a new generation one, which was such a big ad campaign at that time and everything. So um, that was fun. Another thing, Josh, like uh, tell me you uh, didn't have a major crush on uh, Tia Carrera when you saw cassandra at that point in time of course and tia carrera is is beautiful and this was a, a breakout for her 
And and she's like a real character too. I feel like this kind of movie could easily just objectify her and not that they don't talk about how she's a babe, which they do in multiple different uh, metaphors. But she has her own arc. I mean, she's a musician and she's trying to succeed. And the big climax of the movie, the big success is not anything to do with Wayne's World, the show. It's getting Cassandra to get a record deal, to be heard by this big record executive. So I like that, that Wayne is kind of this, this self-sacrificing guy. Uh, I forget where somewhere I read or whatever talked about how Wayne is like, he's, he's very insecure. And, you know, that's, that's the opposite of how you might portray like a cool heavy metal dude or whatever, but he's, he's always, I mean, it goes to, to sort of a, an extreme and it's too much how worried he is that he's going to lose Cassandra. But even in meeting her, it's always he's very tentative and he barely knows her. And he's like, I got to learn her language to impress her and things like that. But yeah, she's very, very attractive in this film. And she gets to sing a bunch of songs and showcase her singing yeah. ability. And she those, does a great job with Ballroom Blitz there. She does. And that original oh, yeah. ballad that Why You Want to Break My Heart. I remember listening to that on the classic. Yeah, it's good stuff. And it makes it all the more disappointing how they don't let her. She does like nothing in the sequel. It's it's a it's a bummer. But um, well, Josh, I gotta I gotta interrupt you there yeah. because you brought up a good point and something that you've brought up. Uh, you know, if we look at like a Rushmore episode or something, uh, you love this movie, but Wayne really stinks when it comes to the way he uh, acts around Cassandra when she's uh, escalating uh, her fame and the lack of trust and uh you know he doesn't not only not trust her but he also like doesn't think that anyone would want to just make this music with her because of her talent it's pretty uh pretty unlikable stuff he's doing at that point it is it is i mean i think wayne is so affable and the way that mike myers plays him is so sort of friendly and charismatic that he doesn't come off as like a monster there or anything and i think that's that's part of the plot that Wayne has to learn that he has to learn to accept it. And he does by the end. And, and again, I think because the climax is about him acknowledging she's talented and it's not just him getting her back, it's him allowing her to showcase her talents to the world. I think that's a good arc for him. And another thing not to harp on the sequel, but he then backslides and does the exact same thing in the sequel. Um, but you're right. I think he does get a bit unlikable and they allow him to get a bit unlikable but I, for me at least, I never was like, oh, Wayne sucks. I hate him. I still am on his side, even though it's like, hey, get it together, man. And the same, and part of why we have Garth is because Garth is a voice of reason for him there. And he has a falling out with Garth too. And he has to learn to appreciate his sidekick who is his best friend and is just as valuable as he is. And again, it's, a, it's an extremely well-constructed film for just a silly little comedy based on a sketch. You know, Dana Carvey was so famous already at the time. And a lot of that fame is because, you know, the, the, the impressions that he does, like, and he'll be the first to say it is not for accuracy. It's for accuracy of like an essence or a character. And so when he would do like a George Bush, right, it would be much bigger than the actual George Bush. H. Ross Perot was like, you know, the cartoon version of that. And that's what made it so good. But He's so wonderfully subtle as Garth and um, the quieter he goes, the funnier it becomes. And when they're walking into the club and like Meatloaf wants to high five him and he just like looks at him and, and just like awkwardly shimmies away. Like 
that's some of that stuff is just like my other favorite stuff in this film. Yeah, Garth is so weirdly modest, but he has all these hidden talents, like the bit where he plays the drums. And I think Dana Carvey really yeah. is like a, a very good drummer. Yeah, yeah. It was in a rock band I think, back in the day. It was a rock drum. I, yeah, I totally believe it. But he does that amazing drum solo. And then the guy comes up to him and he's like, wow, you're so good, man. And he's just like, I like to play. And then he hits the cymbal in this super like <laughs> shy, timid way. It's just hilarious. I, yeah. I love that. But he's obviously right. He's an amazing drummer. He's like inventing a robot at one point in the movie. Um, when when Benjamin Roblo's character tries to talk to him, he's got this like some sort of electrical thing. And what I love too is so there's this scene, they go into the the rock club and he's too timid. He can't get by. He can't push to the front along with Wayne. So he goes back out to his car and he gets this weird electrical contraption and goes back to the guy in his way and gives him this huge electric shock, right? And that's the bit. And then, like, in later scenes, he's just wearing that electrical contraption. He doesn't ever use it again. He's just got it, like, around his belt, hanging out with it. I thought that was hilarious. Well, that that bit is also one of those non sequiturs that, like, is broader than the rest of the movie. And you just, like, accept it and go with it. But um, very funny. I mean, we got to talk about Bohemian Rhapsody sure. and that sequence. Um, which, you know, you said it was a, a comeback for it, but it was, I, I mean, we're living this moment again right now with Kate Bush and running up that hill in Stranger Things. It's not a comeback. It's made the whole thing more popular, right? right so right. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, That I didn't know that song beforehand, and I think a lot of people our age didn't, and that just uh, made that song explode into the pop cultural lexicon. It charted at number two after that, and became such a huge deal and uh you know all, every time you read about this movie it's like oh the studio wanted something more current and more modern and mike myers fought to keep that song in which is great yeah absolutely and, and i think you're right that it i mean it was a comeback it's not like queen wasn't well known but especially right. especially i think in the u.s they weren't nearly as popular as they had been in the uk and it really created this whole new sustained popularity for them and I think, you know, there was like that halo effect. It wasn't just that Bohemian Rhapsody was a huge hit. It was that Queen overall, like I don't, I should have looked this up, but I'm trying to remember that big Freddie Mercury tribute concert with all these like huge musicians sitting in with Queen and singing their songs. I feel like was not that long after this because I remember certainly for me, by the, and I had not heard of Queen before until this film, by the time that tribute concert came out, I was like, this is the biggest deal. I am so excited for this. And I watched it and I record, I probably have a, that or like on a VHS recording somewhere still too. And, and, and watching that. And so Queen as a whole, like their greatest hits albums, which I remember buying after this, like all of that became a much, much, much bigger deal because of this movie. Right. Well, to go along with that, Josh, uh, Queen had fallen out of favor with the, general public in the u.s like the last few tours they didn't even book the u.s on those tours from what i read and um you know freddie mercury died just a short while before this and that was the first kind of major rock star i remember dying of aids and how he announced it the day before he died it was a whole crazy thing right but yeah i mean that was really fun to discover the music of queen and obviously we know queen is just fucking awesome you know. Queen is fucking awesome, but I think yep. yeah. the way that they showcase Queen in that scene is just absolutely perfect. It's not just, and I think this is similar to the Kate Bush thing in Stranger Things. It's not just, oh, we heard this song. 
It's like it was presented in such a perfect way that everyone who watched this had to love it. Right. It's yeah. hilarious, but it also goes to kind of help build the characters and everything. Yeah. Kate Bush, not hilarious and strange. No, no. But I mean, I think similarly, it's the way that it's showcased is that makes people pay attention. Like there's a lot of other music in this movie. Like I said, that, you know, for me was a big deal. And I'm sure a lot of other people, too. But none of it is presented in the way that Bohemian Rhapsody is that that really just grabs you in that in such a strong way. Right. And that is, you know, a meme going around now with the. You guys are upset about these kids learning about Kate Bush through Stranger Things. Like you knew what Bohemian Rhapsody was before Wayne's World. Right, right? exactly. And like I said, not only that, but like Jimi Hendrix, who, of course, was very, very famous. Um, But, you know, I was introduced to via this via this film. Um, And again, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one, especially when it reached a younger audience, 12 or even a little younger than that, because this is certainly the kind of movie that younger kids can enjoy. And maybe they don't get all the pop culture references. I mean, we could talk about more of those, but I surely did not know who Laverne and Shirley were when I watched this movie, but I was still amused by that whole sequence where they go to Milwaukee. So Josh, you want younger kids swinging at women now? I do not. I do not. But uh, I think to be entertained by this movie, you know, kids, I don't know if uh, kids today, Jason, I don't know if kids today would be into Wayne's World, but kids in 1991, yeah, of course they were watching this movie. Or 1992. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody. We've mentioned Schwing, right? Yeah. yeah right. You know, yeah, right? Party on. We're not worthy. Yes. The, even that's what she said, right? Yes. Which obviously the office, you know, played with afterwards. And then not. Everything became part of the pop culture from this film. Absolutely. And like I said, I was, I'm sure, doing all of that stuff. And I was probably very annoying. Uh, at the time. So, uh, yes, it was all there. Josh, you were, you were an annoying, you were adorable. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Not. Oh, you got me. You got me. <laughs> you, you, I walked right into that and you got me. Uh, 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 uh. You walked right I into it did. and then I got you. That's what she uh, said. What? Uh, I got nothing. I went one too far. Yeah, that wasn't as good. Oh, well, uh, uh, no. I feel like we have to, we haven't yet mentioned Penelope Spears, the director of this movie, and she's a key, Who? <laughs> she's a key element <laughs> of its success. I mean, people credit, obviously, Mike Myers, and he deserves a lot of credit for creating these characters. And he is the co-screenwriter of this film, along with Bonnie Turner and Terry Turner. Terry Turner. There you go. I keep wanting to say Ted Turner. That's not right. Um, yeah. He's, he's a renaissance man. Yeah. Um, so obviously, he, Mike Myers deserves a lot of credit for this. but. Penelope Spheris, whose background is in music documentaries, who made the Decline of Western Civilization movies before this, and had made these kind of underground, independent films about like punk rockers and people on the fringes and all that kind of stuff. She brings an important sensibility and her like level of music knowledge, I'm sure, comes in here. I mean, obviously, Mike Myers was the one who picked Bohemian Rhapsody, but I'm sure she had a hand in picking a lot of the other music that's in this film. And I think that combination of his characters and his comic sensibility and her background as a director really makes this movie work and is something that you can see is missing from the sequel. Well, they did not get along and Mike Myers made sure she, you know, he did not want her to direct the sequel. Also, though, on the flip side of that, this is uh, her best narrative piece that I've seen by a long shot, like not even close. So. They elevated each other. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the thing is that it's the combination there 
that that really makes this movie work. And uh, so credit to her. And, um, you know, and it was an unconventional choice. She certainly hadn't made like a mainstream film or even really a comedy per se, not this kind of comedy um, before this film. So credit to Lorne Michaels. I, I mean, dudes is kind of dudes is supposed to be like this kind of dumb buddy comedy, but this is a, obviously a far better film than dudes. Yeah, I haven't seen Josh. I haven't seen dudes. I haven't I've seen some early Penelope Spheris, but not not dudes. But you're right. I think that is a comedy. But this is it is it's it's a pretty big leap for her from something like dudes to this film. Agreed. You know, so so credit to Lorne Michaels. I feel like now if there's a an SNL movie being made, they wouldn't pick that kind of director. It would just be someone who's directed some like sitcom episodes or whatever, and they would get them to to just do an anonymous job with it to showcase the characters. And that's not what's going on here. I wonder if we're going to get like a bunch more SNL movies on Peacock at some point. It seems just like straight to Peacock SNL. Yeah, that seems like it's it's probably going to happen. So I'm trying. What what else do we want to mention here about this film? What other highlights? We don't have to mention anything else, Josh. You don't have to stretch the awesome movie or episode. We've we've sang its praises over and over again, talked about all the funny stuff, Josh. We can just rate this thing and move on with our lives to the next segment. All right. Well, let's do that then. Should we rate it out of five schwings? <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> oh, man. I gave it three and a half swings. Swing, 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 swing. <laughs> and um, it's just fun. That's that sweet spot for me. I love those three and a half movies. The three and a half stars are not the greatest movies, but they're fun all the way through and just great. Yeah, I, I get to give it four swings out of five. I do have such a, a love for it, a nostalgic love for it. But I do think also that it is a great movie. It's maybe not a perfect movie, but as far as this kind of comedy goes, it's it's a really, really great example of it. So four for me. Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going four and a half just because of how much impact it had on me personally, right. you know, so I've given it that little extra half. But uh, it, I, I was so happy that it held up. Honestly, I hadn't seen it in so many years and uh, it really does hold up. Yeah, that is always a concern for movies that you loved as a kid. Like, is this going to work out? Yeah, I, I don't remember how long it was since I last saw it. It was more recently than when I was, you know, 14, but it still had been quite a while. And I, I do think that it holds up pretty well. So we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Wayne's World. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1992, we are talking about my pick, which is Wayne's World. And we really, we've talked a lot about things related to the legacy of this film already. Uh, I keep mentioning the sequel because it's it's a pretty big disappointment, even though it, it's still entertaining, I yeah. think. Yeah. But compared to the original, it definitely falls into a lot of the traps that I think the original movie avoids in terms of not having a very cohesive plot, feeling like just a series of random sketches. Uh, poor Tia Carrere really is, is, is poorly served after they really gave her a nice showcase in the first movie and created a love interest who was a full character on her own. It essentially just repeats her entire character arc from the first movie, and she doesn't even get to sing any songs in the second movie. And a lot of the bits and a lot of the plot points are really just rehashes of the first movie. The uh, the people who succeed are the people who weren't showcased in the first one. 
You get Walken, who's this fun kind of uh, a somewhat sleazy producer. You get Kim Basinger really going for it as that dream woman for Garth. And uh, you get uh, Chris Farley getting to showcase himself a little more in a different character than he was in the first. Yeah, and I think uh, the character of Del Preston, the sort of seen it all roadie played by Ralph Brown from from With Nell and I, which was a movie that we just were talking about for some reason on another episode, I think. Yeah. Um, he's a great addition to this. And I think Del Preston is really what makes, uh, you know, gives Wayne's World 2 a lot of its value. But you're right. Kim Basinger as Honey Hornet is very funny. And probably probably the best scene in Wayne's World 2 is the seduction scene between Honey and Garth, and just the way that both she and Dana Carvey play that is just absolutely hilarious. I mean, that that's very good. I, I thought the way they worked into the YMCA number was organically funny enough, and that, that turned out to be a very funny number as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of funny stuff in it, and I, certainly if you like the first one, there's a lot of stuff you'll enjoy, but I think given how clever and how smartly constructed the first movie is, it's just it just feels like a letdown because it's a rehash. And it was a big failure at the box office, which is sort of weird because there was, you know, Wayne's World was so popular, you'd think that just kind of more of the same would have been appealing to a lot of audiences, but it wasn't, I guess. Well, then, of course, Mike Myers went on to do nothing. <laughs> yes, Mike Myers did have a period of massive stardom after this, of course. I mean, the Austin Powers movies, even more popular than the Wayne's World movies. Huge, huge, huge success for him with those three Austin Powers movies. And then, you know, you mentioned how... Even more popular than that, the Shrek movies. The Shrek movies, yes, of course. That could, the continued popularity. And I think these days, people know him most as Shrek. But, you know, you mentioned that he and Penelope Spheris didn't get along and he kind of pushed her out of directing the sequel. And I think for someone who's known for these goofy comedy characters, Mike Myers behind the scenes is known for having this massive ego and being very difficult to work with and very demanding. And whether that contributed to his later sort of downfall, it's possible. You know, his big project, The Love Guru, which was hyped up as like, here's the new Wayne or here's the new Austin Powers, the latest crazy cool character that people are going to love from Mike Myers. And that movie was just a giant failure. And between that and like the cat in the hat, I think, which was also a big, uh, a big failure. He, he just, he was massive. And then he just fell right off a cliff, like almost immediately, I think. I know, but three times in his career, he did something that became so successful that people would go around quoting it for years to come, right? Like all three of the Shrek, the, the Shrek, Josh, the Austin Powers, Josh, and the Wayne's World, like those became like staples of everyday conversation that everybody knew, right? Right, absolutely. Um, so you can't do it every time. Obviously, I tried to watch his new one, The Pentaverid, and I watched one episode and couldn't do anymore. But my hope is that, you know, he kind of moves into cool supporting roles where he can showcase his talents and not have to be, you know, do the heavy lifting anymore because obviously we know he's incredibly talented. Right. And I, I mean, I would agree that that would be a good thing for him to do, but it seemed like at least for a while, maybe his massive ego didn't allow that because after he had those big box office failures, he didn't transition into like smaller roles or smaller movies. He just went away for a very long time and did almost nothing. 
And he did come back in some smaller roles in uh, Inglorious Bastards. And um, I uh, I didn't notice anything else down, but I know he was in that. He is, Bohemian Rhapsody, right? There you go. Right. Yeah, in which Bohemian. is funny because that goes to, uh, you know, uh, it, it's almost meta that they made him that executive. is like, you know, no one's going to want to hear this song. Right. Yes, that is certainly yeah. a meta joke in there. And. You know, he seems to be willing to do those roles occasionally. He's, I guess he's in David O. Russell's upcoming movie, Amsterdam, which has got like everyone in it. So who knows if right. it has a very large part? Probably not. But yeah, I never, I, the, the Pentaveret looked so terrible to me in the previews that I didn't even bother trying it. But uh, of course, it is a reference to the movie that he did right after Wayne's World. So I Married an Axe Murderer, which was also not a success. And uh, I think we all watched that movie, at least for me, it was the first time. And uh, I was a bit uh, underwhelmed with that one, I think. Um, although it is also the origin of, of a lot of Mike Myersy things, including his weird obsession with Scotland and Scottish culture and Scottish voices. <laughs> I liked it a lot. I thought it was uh, really that's funny. because of his dad, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that's why, because his dad was Scottish. Yeah. So, but so. I mean, doing those characters, he plays the dad in that movie. So, yeah. Dave, you were a fan of that one? I did. Yeah, I thought it was really funny. And I, I don't know why I'd never seen it until now, but um, I, I it's it reminded me of his better output from that era. Yeah, know? I don't know why I hadn't seen it either, because, of course, I was such a huge Wayne's World fan. You'd think I would have rushed out to see this, too, but I never did. Maybe just because I I only like Wayne. I wasn't into Mike Myers, per se. But to me, right. it was just a lot of things that didn't really quite work. And because maybe because he's known for playing these cartoonish kinds of characters, I never bought Mike Myers as like a normal person who has a normal romance in that movie. I mean, mm. as a, you know, I kind of agree with you, Josh. It's a lot of parts that don't equal one whole. And then in, um, as I told you, Act 3 just kind of goes totally in a different direction in the first hour. But as I also told you, Josh, off air, I love uh, seeing things in the 90s, like a guy who can be a jazz poet and live in a beautiful apartment in San Francisco with beautiful sky city views and his own rooftop. Like, what a time to be alive. Yeah, that is mm -hmm. the apparent profession of his character in that movie, performing sort of old fashioned beat poetry. The one, the one poem. Right, basically just, just the one. variations on one poem. Uh, every week or so. Yeah. So I don't know. That wasn't great. But I, I feel like Mike Myers is at a point now where, I mean, the Pentaveret did not do well, didn't get good reviews, didn't seem like it was a big hit for Netflix. But he could get himself back in the groove with those smaller roles if he's willing to be a bit more humble. On the other hand, I'm sure he's made enough money between the Shrek movies and Austin Powers and Wayne's World that he probably doesn't need to ever work again if he doesn't want to. So if that's how he feels, then I'm sure he'll be fine. I still feel like he's got some left in the tank that we'll see. And and Dana Carvey, uh, just about probably the biggest star ever at like, you know, Chevy Chase level star when he left SNL. And there's uh, really some interesting stuff about how Lauren Michaels had considering like sign him basically to a lifetime contract when he was going to leave SNL. And he, there was talk that he was going to take over the Tonight Show. And he made the Dana Carvey show. Which, if you look back at the ratings now, didn't do badly at all, but came with such hype that they canceled it so quickly. There's that really interesting documentary on Hulu, Too Funny to Fail, The Life and Death of the Dana Carvey Show, 
But that show launched Steve Carell, launched Stephen Colbert. Um, the writer's room, you know, had guys like Louis C.K. and all these other comedians in it. like Charlie Kaufman, too. Charlie Kaufman, kind of ahead of its time right there. Right. It has a massive cult following now. And I don't know. I've never seen any of it, I don't think. But and I'm not sure if it's available to stream. It's anywhere. hilarious. But yeah, it seems like Dave's yeah, it's so probably cool. on Hulu. I think it's, it could be. I don't know. Stream I didn't, it on I didn't Hulu, check right? it. But yeah, that was certainly something that was seen as a huge failure at the time. And that has a big, big cult following. But um, as as you mentioned, Jason, Dana Carvey's big movie star vehicle post Wayne's World was The Master of Disguise, which was not only a huge flop, but is known often as one of the worst movies ever made. And have you seen that, Jason? Uh, no, the Dana Carvey show is on uh, FUBU, FUBO, whatever, Phoebe, FABO. But um, I don't think I've ever seen The Master of Disguise, but I just remember the commercials where he would just say, turtle, turtle, for some reason. Have you seen it? I haven't, but it has such an amazing reputation as this spectacular disaster that I feel like I should see it at some point. We should watch or it. Or if we, you know, if yeah. we talk about 2002 in uh, on Awesome Movie Year, maybe we'll get it to, to be our flop episode. but. Dave, have you seen it? It seems like the kind of thing you would have seen. I definitely saw it when I came out, but Turtle Turtle is the only thing I remember from it, too. And, <laughs> I, and mean, I actually saw the whole movie. So <laughs> He's one of the voices in the secret life of pets. And honestly, he's a he's still a really great comedian. I saw him a few oh, years ago. I love ago. his stand-up. And so yeah, he's, he's just, he's great live. So, you know, he's another one who just kind of works when he wants to work, and that's fine. Yeah, I mean, he deliberately, uh, I mean, I'm sure it didn't help that his movie was a huge failure, but he also deliberately kind of retired from acting and instead is focused on that stand-up comedy. And yeah, he's hilarious. I still remember from this period watching like a Comedy Central special or something and his little, like his piano song, the Chopping Broccoli or whatever. Oh, it's just, yeah, which they did as a sketch on SNL. It's yeah, and so obviously yeah. I hadn't seen it on yeah. SNL or whatever, but I remember watching that special and him being hilarious. And he pops up here in Vegas, you know, every so often performing at, at uh, casinos here. I saw him do the joint headline thing with John Lovitz, and um, they made such a huge mistake. It was a residency at the Sahara at the time. And Dana Carvey, is a veteran 40-year comedian, right? And John Lovitz is an incredibly funny actor, but he transitioned into comedy after like kind of acting wasn't as lucrative as it used to be. He's like Jeremy Piven now, right? And um, Dana Carvey is just a like an incredible comedian. And John Lovitz is doing like a lot of like very obvious street style like shop humor. And they made the the awful mistake of putting Dana Carvey on first. So you crest all the way to the middle of the show and then it just plummets so hard. It was, I, I think I might've covered that show yeah. too. And that was my review of it. And uh, a, a little funny story aside about that, Robin Leach, Josh, mm. the, uh, our old media magnate host of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Well, I, he was at the show I was at and, uh, I asked him what he thought and he told me he liked it. And then I told him what I thought. And he goes, and he goes, but who cares what you think? No one's paying you to write about this. Right. Yeah. And I said, actually, I got paid by the Las Vegas weekly to write about this. My articles out now. And he goes, the Las Vegas weekly, that rag, what did they pay you with old copies of the Las Vegas weekly? Yeah. Robin Leach, uh, rest in peace, Robin Burn. Leach, but a massive uh, jerk, I think to many people or just very condescending, right? That was his whole deal. He was so full of himself. But that was his charm. That was his charm. Like he wasn't a jerk. He was an asshole, but like 
I loved it when he would say stuff like that to me. What a good Dave. You're right. That's a great burn. Yes. Yeah. Um, And and of course, and also an ironic burn because Robin Leach worked for many, many years for the company that owns Las Vegas Weekly and they paid him. Also the beauty of it. Um, But uh, back to Dana Carvey. Very funny. Well, look, how about uh, Penelope Sphere? As we mentioned, some of her stuff. Uh, obviously, the decline of Western civilization documentaries doing these kind of weird punk rock uh, narratives like suburbia and dudes in the 80s. And then in the 90s, after this, she went on and did uh, The Little Rascals and Beverly Hillbillies, which, uh, no thanks. Um, Black Sheep with Chris Farley, Senseless with Marlon Wayans. And the movie that we all thought was going to happen was in 2006 when she was supposed to do The Gospel According to Janice. The Janis Joplin story starring Pink and it never materialized. Yeah, that probably would have been better to her strengths. I mean, obviously, she used this movie as a springboard to make all those mainstream comedies that you mentioned. I I haven't seen any of them, and I'm sure they're not necessarily very good, but it made sense for her to move on to these recognizable properties, whether it was the Beverly Hillbillies and the Little Rascals or another SNL star by working with Chris Farley on Black Sheep. Uh, and, and I think it worked out for her for a little while. And then she kind of, uh, she's, she's kind of disappeared really, uh, after all of those, those mainstream comedies, the last movie she directed was something that I've never really seen or even heard of called balls to the wall. Another comedy that came out in 2011 and she, she hasn't, thank you. She hasn't, uh, directed anything (laughs) since then. And I mean, she's like in her like mid seventies now, and I'm sure she's happy to be retired and doesn't necessarily need to direct anything, but it seemed like her career could have gone maybe if she had done that Janis Joplin movie in a more interesting direction. Cause you watch her early films, like you said, those decline of Western civilization documentaries or dudes or suburbia, which I know Jason that you watched recently. And, and she has this real sense of like underground punk rock and heavy metal culture yeah. that she captured really well, not only in those documentaries, but also in those narrative films in her early years, you know, kind of covering that LA dirtbag scene or whatever. I watched a movie called The Boys Next Door that she made in 1985, starring Charlie Sheen and Maxwell Caulfield as essentially like, what if Wayne and Garth were psychopathic murderers? There are these like yeah. kind of, you know, dude bro friends and they go around and kill people. And at one point they say, party on, and then hit an old lady over the head with a bottle. So was it good? Eh, it's interesting. It's it gets a little overwrought towards the end, but it's something. It's certainly something. And Dave watched all three of the decline of Western civilizations. Dave, you want to jump in on those? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're great. Um, I actually like the second one the best. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's just, yeah, you know, the, those guys, those like heavy metal guys, they just play to the camera so much that it makes it such a much more fun experience to watch rather than these like really shitty punk rockers that are like, you know, just awful people. And then the third one is just super depressing, but also good. But you know, just that, that whole scene of the punk fans that are all basically like homeless and on drugs and all that. Uh, but the other, yeah, they're, they're all three fascinating movies. Yeah. I've only seen the second one and I saw it around this same time. And again, I think those, those heavy metal guys, like you say, they're playing up to the camera and they're all kind of buffoonish, but I was like, these guys are the coolest. I want to be like them. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Josh, for a guy who hates pieces of shit, you really admired a lot of pieces of shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those guys are all tough, but they are. They're amusing to watch. Certainly. I mean, that's about the the kind of Sunset Strip hair metal scene in the in the mid to late 80s. 
very, very entertaining. I still remember the scene. Is there just like a scene of Ozzy Osbourne making eggs or something like that while he's talking? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, Dave, yeah. did you ever play either the Wayne's World video game or the Wayne's World VCR board game? Definitely not the board game. I probably played the video game. I will tell you the book, Extreme Close-Up, was, we all know that I don't read, but uh, I loved that book. I used to read it all the time. Oh, tell us about that. I don't remember. Like It was just supplemental stuff to, to, the, to the show, because I think it came out right before the movie. Like It was like promotional for the movie. Um, but the thing that I remember the most about it is it had like a tutorial on how to do an extreme close up <laughs> and you just take the book and you, you know, right into your face. Ah! And it actually like makes like a sound tunnel. If you do that, I don't know if you guys have ever done that before. I, uh, pretty, I have not pretty cool. like, put a book uh, right into my face before. But... You could do it with any book, yeah. guys. You just go, ah! and it, just do it after we finish recording. All I'm right, surprised I didn't fun. own that book because I was big on that kind of stuff. I remember owning like Beavis and Butthead books and things like that. Oh, yeah, me too. So I don't know why I never <laughs> had that one. Hey, Josh, uh, one Mike Myers thing we left out was he did make Supermensch, the documentary about Shep Gordon. That's a pretty fun documentary. And then, Josh, the other thing is, I mean, we could go on and on, but the supporting cast all really succeeded big time in the 90s. You know, Rob Lowe, we talked about. Lara Flynn Boyle became a big star in the 90s. Brian Doyle Murray, we know, is always a great character actor. Kurt Fuller, always a great character actor. Farley, Ed O'Neill, Ioni Sky, Meatloaf. Alice Cooper, this is his best work. And uh, the Robert Patrick cameo, you can't forget. That. Yeah, the T-1000 oh, from yeah. Terminator 2, which is one of the pop culture things here that I think thankfully holds up better because people still remember that movie as opposed to the Grey Poupon mm. commercials that probably no one remembers anymore. <laughs> I like that. I like it too, but you know that hasn't had a lasting impact on yeah. society, certainly. So yeah, I mean, Rob Lowe, like I said, I think this was a good template for some of the goofy comedy stuff he did later, like on Parks and Recreation and The Grinder. Um, when he was uh, willing to lampoon his image more and more um, that he started doing here. Tia Carrere, I mean, this wasn't necessarily as big a breakout for her as it seemed like it could have been, but she works steadily, does a lot of B-movie stuff. Yeah, she's working constantly. Yeah, TV guest starring, does voice acting, uh, has done reality TV stuff, and and is a singer too. And I thought it was interesting that although around this time she had tried to do kind of pop, music or rock, pop rock music. But then she shifted that focus and put out a bunch of albums of traditional Hawaiian music and she's from Hawaii. So that's kind of a, 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 yeah. niche, a niche thing, but cool for her. And she won some Grammys or was nominated for Grammys for that. So uh, good for her. And, you know, still a babe, of course, the most important thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, Josh, she will be in Easter Sunday, the Joe Coy movie coming out. So, right. Yeah. That, uh, between be that and Lilo and Stitch, she's uh, got a lot going on for her still. Yeah, she's definitely working very successfully. But I think this movie was so huge that you would have imagined her to become a bigger star based on it. And that isn't quite what happened. And Rob Lowe, uh, it's a, I don't know if you know this, but it's a law that every year when the new television schedules come out, Rob Lowe has to have a starring vehicle at least once a year. He's yeah. in a TV show every year of his life now. He Good is. for him. Making he moves. I think he's currently on what, the 911, the one that's in Texas yeah. or something. Yeah. So I should. Yeah. He's he's everywhere. Well, I do want to say Ed O'Neill, who, as I said, was my favorite part of this movie. He is going to be in the Sterling Affairs playing Donald Sterling, the owner of the Clippers who uh, had a major 
uh, disgraceful downfall saying racist stuff. And Ed O'Neill, I'm excited for that because we know what a great comedy actor is, but we, but he can also bring it as a dramatic actor. It's going to be fun. He can. And I think part of what's funny about those bits of his in this movie is how he completely plays it straight as <laughs> very serious, so, yeah. very dramatic. And yeah. that makes it even funnier. Oh, so good. Yeah. So, so Jason, I, you you are a big SNL fan. And you mentioned how this did kick off this big boom of SNL movies in a way that the Blues Brothers didn't. I feel like we talked about this in our Blues Brothers episode, but do you have another favorite SNL movie? There's only one, Josh. MacGruber! (laughs) Yeah, MacGruber has quite a following that I do not get, but... You talking about it's hilarious. Talking about Peacock, there was. Did you watch the MacGruber show on Peacock? I, I will watch it. I I want to just savor it because MacGruber is hilarious, and uh, I'm excited for that. And um, uh, I don't think there's ever been another good SNL movie beyond those three. Do you? I know. I mean, I don't even like MacGruber, as I was saying, and there, I haven't seen a lot of them. I never saw like a Night at the Roxbury or The Ladies Man. So I can't imagine that I'm missing much with those. But I I, I can't fully evaluate all of them i w- i will stand up for a night at the roxbury um, all right Are totally stupid and, but and so head? much fun yeah, yeah. Lo- oh, it- there you oh go. yeah He's i'm doing, doing it everybody can't see it but he's doing it. yeah um <laughs> is there jason is there a current or recent snl character that you think deserves a movie that is a really good question i should have thought about that one a little more i think this uh new young comedy troupe that they have on there. The guys who are in like the new Lonely Island will probably come out with something. But is there a recurring character lately that uh, I see getting one? I don't think so. Um, Especially with all the characters who just left, you know? Yeah. Um, We'll see what comes next. So I do think there's some great talent on SNL. Like, I have no doubt that Chloe Fineman's going to be like uh, a major star or at least like a working actress in everything. She's so, she's so good, you know? So we'll see what, what becomes of these get these guys, huh? Yeah. Well, I think you're right in that. Um, maybe more now it's that model of like the lonely Island where they didn't have like an SNL character that they made into a movie, but they just had new, uh, characters or new ideas that they made movies out of that Lauren Michaels is producing. And he's, really heavily into producing new vehicles for various SNL people. And rather than making a movie based on one of the characters, it's more like, hey, these people are talented. Let's put them in something or let's have them do something. Well, that makes so much sense, especially with Peacock. And we know like Pete Davidson has that new show coming. I mean, look, it's all about creating universes right now. Like, why wouldn't you have that with SNL? Like you have all this talent through the years. Like, just do that. That's a great idea. Yeah. Josh. This is why we're broke. <laughs> and you mentioned the new Lonely Island, the, those guys that please don't destroy who have their own little kind of digital sketches. And they did just sign a deal to make a movie. So uh, it is happening. There you go. They're on the way. So uh, anything else about the legacy of Wayne's World that you'd like to mention, Jason? I like seeing Ioni Sky at the beginning. We like we talked about her and uh, uh, say anything, of course. And uh, let's see, Josh, we kind of went through everybody. I know there was a lot of people to get through because they all succeeded at such a high level. Um, Josh, I do think uh, you would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those darn kids. This The Scooby-Doo reference there with the amusement park <laughs> owner that they that they see. That in, they call Old Man Withers, right. which and was it, a great name. In yeah. the very beginning of the movie, he's just one of the guys hanging out at Stan Makita's Donuts, and they make sure you're aware of him so that he can come back later in the Scooby-Doo ending. 
Uh, so that is Wayne's World. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. We're on the social media. I might uh, go for Jason on Letterboxd, Josh. I'm now promoting that. Yeah, uh, yeah. But you can find well, you can find me at uh, Jason Harris Comedy on all the socials. And I do have a website. Uh, it's uh, goforjason.com that nobody cares about and uh, is not partying on right now. However, something that is partying on, Josh, is my new company, Eat This Comedy. We're starting to book shows with restaurants all over Vegas and beyond. So be on the lookout for that. Josh, let's talk not about me, but about us. We're at awesomemovieyear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram and Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, which is not great. Uh, at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd if you want to check out my uh, very entertaining comments on movies and see all the terrible movies that I get stuck watching. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And uh, the week that this uh, episode goes up, my new single, Antiviral, comes out. You can check that out uh, by davidrosen.com. Uh, I like to say that I'm better than the shitty Beatles. All right. But can, <laughs> can you listen to it in your car and headbang to it? You actually probably could, yes. All right. I'll, I'll look so, forward to doing yeah. that. But Dave, the thing about the shitty Beatles is that they're so bad. That's the... I know, and I'm better than that. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So, what is in our next episode, Jason? Josh, oh boy, uh, I'm so excited for the next episode. It's our foreign film. It could have been our cult classic as well. It is one of the most roguish films ever made. It's called Man Bites Dog, and when I watched this for the first time, it was uh, an overload to the brain. So this is going to be something, my friend. Yeah, I know you were a big advocate for talking about this movie. So I look forward to doing that. Tune in next time for Man Bites Dog. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.